Well, good morning. It's good to see you all. Good morning to everyone who's watching online. Let's go ahead and open up our Bibles uh, together to Galatians chapter 3. The verses we'll be looking at this morning, if you want to follow along in the Blue Pew Bible, uh, can, be pa- can be found on page 974. Uh, and let me just say, I- I'm impressed for all those of you who are here at the 9 a.m. service on the day that we sprang forward, all right? So don't let it get to your head, uh, but just making maybe a nod of approval to everybody else uh, in the room. But it is good uh, to gather here. And I want to start by asking if you have ever found yourself in a situation where you are with a group of people uh, that you don't really know yet, and they don't know you yet, and you were told, hey, tell us about yourself. Some of you just got a shudder down your spine, like it's the worst possible situation you feel like you could be in. But, but where do you start in your response to that question? It's a kind of a fascinating social experiment to see how people would begin in their response, especially if you're the first one in the group to answer, right? Because if you're not the first one, everyone else is just going to follow your lead, all right? However you start, that's the way they'll start. But if you're first, man, you're just on your own in the deep end. Like, how am I going to define myself? I have to decide what is the most important thing to say about myself And the irony is that while no one knows you more than you do, that you can kind of struggle where to begin. There's a lot, let's put it this way, there's a lot of weird ways this could go. All right, if I'm sitting in a group and I say, well, you know, my ethnic heritage is uh, my my ancestors, I'm I'm, I'm 50% Norwegian, I'm 25% Scottish, 25% English, but oh, breaking news, my family found out in recent years we might have a little bit of Welsh in our family. Cool, cool. Nobody cares, all right? Like, nobody really is going to care about that. That'd be weird. If I start just by talking about other people that are adjacent to me, well, my wife is Rochelle, and we have four kids. It's kind of strange to start just talking about other people. Plus, if there's other people maybe in the group who are single, do I need to imply that they need to start by saying, well, I'm so-and-so and I'm single? No, that'd be kind of just strange. If I go age and I say, I'm, I'm 33 years old, I am square in the middle of the millennial generation. No, weird. And so I think as a society, and you can maybe, maybe have a different opinion, but I think we've kind of collectively agreed this is where you begin. This is the less weird, least weird place. Uh, where you live currently and what you quote unquote do for a living. I live in Hawthorne and I'm a junior in high school. I live in Allendale, and I'm an accountant. I am from Ridgewood, or live in Ridgewood, and I'm a pastor. And as Joe shared last week, once a pastor reveals they're a pastor, that goes a myriad of ways in social contexts. But based on where you are, who you're with, you're making this subconscious decision in that moment, how do I define myself? What's the most decisive thing about me? You can make a similar question on a more communal level. If someone asked you, if you're a member of this church, hey, tell us about your church. What is your church like? Where do you begin? Uh, As you might imagine, I'm asked that question often, and I can struggle where to begin. Like, do I go down the route of trying to explain what a non-denominational church is? Do I just talk about the suburban context of where our church is located? Do I talk about our staff and our elders? Do I talk about the demographics of our members? If you, as a member of Grace, if someone asks you, or, or maybe you're here this morning because you asked somebody from Grace Church, or you're watching this morning because you asked somebody, hey, tell us about Grace Church. Where do you start? What's the most decisive thing about us? Well, this morning, we are going to cover just two verses 
in Galatians 3. And as I'm sure you've, as you've picked up on as we've been walking through this letter since January, there are times in the series where we cover larger chunks of Galatians, and there are times where we kind of slow down and we look at either just one or two verses. And that really is birthed out of Pastor, and I, uh, Pastor Joe and I uh, talking about before the series began, where, where are the hot spots of Galatians? Where are kind of the areas that we want to zero in on? Which verses do we feel like speak especially prophetically to the church today? And, and this is one of those days just two verses. And so in Galatians 3, we're going to be reading now, uh, Pastor Joe finished with verse 26 last week. We're going to read now just verses 27 and 28. For as many of you as were baptized into Christ have put on Christ. There is neither Jew nor Greek. There is neither slave nor free. There is no male and female, for you are all one in Christ Jesus. Uh, If you're familiar, you've been around church or the Bible for a while, uh, verse 28 is uh, one of the maybe more well-known verses in the Bible, um, at least in part because Based on Paul's context in the first century, Roman Empire, uh, verse 28 was a culturally and socially explosive statement to make. And it's the reason why we want to kind of stop and hover over these two verses this morning is that while there is a simple meaning this morning, I think you will find there's really simple meaning in these verses, it has massive implications for the church, both then and certainly now. And this verse still gets talked about often because while the church has, I think, historically done well in affirming what this verse means, talking about 28, it has often struggled to put this verse into practice. Um, If you have taken any kind of the foundations classes that we do here at Grace, whether foundations or 30 days to understanding the Bible, I always start the class with a quote from a fourth century theologian uh, from North Africa named Augustine. And I think we're going to have the quote on on the screen. Augustine said this 1,600 years ago. Anyone who thinks he has understood the divine scriptures or any part of them, but cannot by his understanding build up this love of God and neighbor, has not succeeded in understanding them. What's it mean to understand, to know the truth of a verse? Part that is in your mind of understand the simple meaning, but then you really show if you understand it, if you put it into practice. If you heard Pastor Joe's sermon last week, he he talked about how the law of God serves the grace of God. That was kind of the the thrust of the passage uh, before, you know, the verses before here in chapter 3, and that this is what the Apostle Paul is doing in the middle of this kind of uh, theologically rich part of this letter. He, He is telling the church, That the promise given to Abraham and the law given to Moses were both given to point us to Christ. We sang about it this morning. All of God's promises find their yes and amen in Christ. And Pastor Joe showed us from the text that at its foundation, God made a promise to be gracious to you. And it's a promise that he kept at the cost of the life of his own son. And when that truth is understood by faith, it will change you from the inside out. 
And so that sermon last week applied it to our lives with the final point that Pastor Joe asked. He says, what difference does it make? Kind of going through, after weaving through this really theologically rich sermon. And he provided some pastoral wisdom for us. But he also set us up for this morning because now Paul himself is going to address what difference it makes. And in a phrase, it is a truth that transforms how we see ourselves and how we see others in the church. So two points this morning. First, the difference it makes is the transformation of how we see ourselves. Verse 27 again, For as many of you as were baptized into Christ have put on Christ. So again, we're covering verses 27 and 28, but let me back up and just read verse 26 again. If you have your Bibles open, look at what verse 26 says, because there's a phrase in verse 26 that I think launched Paul into verse 27. Verse 26, For in Christ Jesus you are all sons of God through faith. It's that phrase, in Christ Jesus. It is a favorite phrase among Paul in all of his letters. In Christ, or in Christ Jesus. And and church, it's not hyperbole to say that if you do not grasp what in Christ means, you will not live the kind of Christian life that God has empowered you to live. When you entrust your life to Jesus by faith, you set out to follow Jesus and become like Jesus. You are united with Christ. You are in Christ. And in Christ means you've been chosen by God. In Christ means you are loved unconditionally by God. In Christ means you are redeemed and forgiven of all sin. Not only the sin you have committed, but the sin you will commit. In Christ means you are a new creation and adopted by God. Adoption's where Paul's going to go after this passage. In Christ means that when God looks at you, he sees Jesus. You are immersed into the person and work of Christ. And that is why, in order to explain this, Paul's just trying with everything he has, just get this in the people of the church of Galatia. Paul provides a word picture of baptism as you were baptized into Christ. And so I see it here that Paul is linking conversion with baptism. He's not saying that baptism saves you because baptism does not save you. But baptism is this kind of outward proclamation, this kind of visible sign and symbol of an inward faith. Most of you know that our practice at Grace Church is what we call believer's baptism. That that throughout the New Testament, we see the pattern of once someone places their faith in Jesus, they are baptized then as a symbol of that faith. Believer's baptism is immersion. It is fully immersed under the water because there's a picture uh, put on display every time someone is baptized. That one dies to self with Christ when we are immersed under the water. And then one rises to new life in Christ when they emerge out of the water. It's a picture of the gospel. And, And that baptism, it identifies you with Christ And so when we talk about baptism, we don't want to talk about it as a required obligation, but rather as a joyful proclamation, right? Like for the believer in Jesus. 
Now, now bear with me for a few minutes here because I, I think this is important. Uh, for, for clarity purposes, uh, Protestant, biblically-rooted churches and denominations, uh, among them, there are two dominant views of baptism. There is what is called credo-baptism or, or believer's baptism, which I just described. And then there is pedo or infant baptism. An infant baptism holds the conviction that baptism in the New Covenant correlates with the practice of circumcision in the Old Testament, which circumcision is talked a lot about in Galatians. But Protestant theology of baptism does not say that 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 baptism of an infant uh, uh, heals them or saves them or, or, or kind of does any kind of cleansing work in them, but rather that it is a sign marking a child as being part of the people of God and engrafting them into the Christian church, distinguishing them from children of unbelievers. That is the conviction of pedo-baptism. And what we know here at Grace is that genuine, faithful Christians can affirm one another's salvation and yet disagree on the view of baptism. And so here's how that kind of works out in the life of Grace Church. Uh, ever since it began over 75 years ago, Grace Church has been a one-practice but dual reception church. What does that mean? It means that our practice here is believer's baptism. But we receive people with both baptism views into membership. Okay, so if someone was baptized as an infant in a Christian baptism, and that person does not yet have that conviction to be baptized as a believer, we will still gladly receive you into the church while you know that you are joining a church whose practice is believer's baptism. But, but, but here's kind of the important thing, that, that, that both credo and pedo-baptists agree that baptism is really important, that baptism does nothing to save you, that baptism is a sign, but where they disagree is that uh, whether it is a sign of the covenant of Christ, as pedo-baptists believe, or a sign of the conversion in Christ, which is what credo-baptist beliefs. And so we can agree to disagree, in a sense, on baptism and still be in glad fellowship and partner gospel ministry as a part of the same church. But with that said, I believe Galatians 3 does clearly link the act and sign of baptism with the promise of being in Christ, which is Paul is talking about at this point in the letter. That baptism is a powerful and experiential proclamation. It's an opportunity to proclaim your faith to your faith community that you are united with him and you are united with one another in his death and in his resurrection. So back to the question, what difference does it make? What difference does it make if you're in Christ? Whether or not you have the conviction to let that baptism be a sign of that. It matters because that union now becomes the foundational truth of how you see and define yourself. Regardless of what you might say in a silly go around and tell about yourself based on what group you're in, you know deep down the most decisive thing about me is that I am in Christ. And then that shapes how you not only view yourself, but then how you live And here's the thing about this. Here's why I think it really does make such an important difference. Is that when that's true, and you can affirm that in your own heart, the most decisive thing about you 
is also the only thing that can never be taken from you. Okay, so think about, again, to the introduction, think about all the ways you could define yourself in this world. Every other thing can change pretty fast outside of our control. I live in New Jersey and I'm a pastor. Both those can change in pretty short order. I'm a husband and I'm a father. Both of those could change in a tragic moment that we're all one phone call away from our lives changing forever. But when you are in Christ, it becomes the truest thing about you because it is God who defines you and it is the most secure thing about you because once you are in Christ, you will never again be outside of him. And so this truth, and one of the reasons why we think this is a hot spot in Galatians to say, man, if we just kind of stop here and understand this and dwell upon this, is because this truth presents a really interesting contrast from our culture. Like, like how you view yourself is a really popular topic today, isn't it? Like, like there is, and I think there is good reason why our culture at large is talking a lot about identity, namely the crisis of low self-esteem that is prevalent high anxiety and depression, especially amongst younger generations and students, where uh, while they are ironically the most digitally connected generation, the studies show over and over again they're also the most relationally isolated, that we have to kind of rethink what does connection mean to other people and how we view ourselves. And in an attempt to defend against a crisis that is rising, that has been rising, you hear a lot of language in our culture trying to boost self-esteem, trying to find meaning in yourself uh, and in your individual autonomy. You are free to be you. Just be yourself. Don't worry what, about any, anything anyone else says. You just love yourself. And there's campaigns, and there's uh, all kinds of movements to try to kind of affirm this in all of us, especially targeting students and younger generations. And I appreciate the attention that is being put towards it, because I think there is a crisis happening before all of our, all of our eyes. But I also believe that any attempts to boost self-esteem by relying on self will fall short. Because the gospel does not say you are enough in yourself, but you are enough in Christ. You are enough in Christ. You can be who you were meant to be. You can have your unique giftings and that autonomy of God has made you the way he has made you. And you are enough in him. Because it is only in Christ where you are both fully known and fully loved. And the lie of the culture is that if I'm going to be really loved by others, they can't truly know me. Or if they are going to truly know me, then they won't truly love me. I need to choose. But only in Christ you are fully known and fully loved. You are secure and valued. And when you are in that place... Now you are empowered to live the life that God has called you to live. And that's where Paul links it in the next phrase. He says, when you are in Christ, you are empowered to then put on Christ. 
Right? So Paul is likely showing, again, linking this to after you are baptized, after you are cleansed, you put on new clothes. Nobody gets cleansed and then puts on the dirty clothes again. Unless you're my seven-year-old son. All right? And he's learning. Uh, but after you, after you are clean, like you, you put on new clothes. And he says, now you are in Christ, so now you daily put on Christ. You get a new wardrobe because you are a new creation. That language, again, it's common with Paul, but it's not only with Paul. It's language in the New Testament of taking off and putting on, taking off and putting on. You won't get far in the New Testament before finding that language. And because you are in Christ, you can put off the clothes of this world, put off the flesh, put off the sin that restrains you, that entangles you, that traps you, and put on Christ, put on the Spirit that frees you to walk in His ways. Uh, one commentator said it, it's, like, it's like when a child grows to be an adult, they need new clothes, right? Their old clothes don't fit anymore. They've matured. Their body has matured. And when your body matures, it needs new clothes to match who they are now. I'll tell you why that struck me in my study of this passage, because I was the kid who was always growing way too fast for their clothes. Okay, all my long sleeve shirts were three-quarter shirts. You know what I mean? And that was not a fashion statement that I was making, right? My, my parents could not keep up with how fast I was growing, right? Like, how are your sweatpants at your ankles again? Like, we just got you those. And, and, and if, I don't know if you've noticed now, but th- that style of sweatpants of kind of hugging the ankles uh, is, is back in style. I can tell you from experience, that was not the style, all right, in, in, in elementary school and middle school and high school. But they were never fitting. Like, I still won't put my clothes in the dryer to this day. I'm serious, right? I'm scarred against things shrinking. But when you grow up, you need new clothes. And when you become a new creation, when you grow in Christ, you need new clothes. You you live and lead a life that is fitting to a new creation that you really are. This is the difference it makes. That when you understand you are in Christ for eternity, you understand that you can have the daily practice of putting on Christ each day. Taking off the old, putting on the new. It's a very practical word picture for how we see ourselves and how then that shapes how we live, how we think, how we speak, and we act, which leads to number two. And into verse 28, the transformation of how we view one another. Transformation of how we see and view one another. Verse 28, there is neither Jew nor Greek. There is neither slave nor free. There's neither no fail, male excuse me, and female, for you are all one in Christ Jesus. When we see this verse in context of the ones that came before it, in addition to the whole letter of Galatians as a whole, we, we get what Paul is doing here. Paul is addressing the harmful practices and attitudes that were arising from the demographic differences of Jews and Gentiles in the same church. That is the reason why he's writing this letter to the church in Galatia. They are confused. They are starting to see harmful practices and attitudes emerge. And the distinctions in the church were remaining as divisions in the church just like they did in the culture around them. And Paul is saying, no, no, no. That's not what the gospel does. Human distinctions do not translate to divisions. 
that keep us from being unified in his body. And this is why this verse is still so vital today. That if we grasp what I'm about to say, it will be enormously impactful for our church, our our relationships, our witness, and our mission. Here's where it is. Our distinctions are not erased by the gospel, but they are subordinated by the gospel to how we see each other in Christ. Can we get that? That our distinctions are not erased by the gospel, but they are subordinated by the gospel. Let let me put it another way. Uh, Our distinctions may explain us, but they do not define us. What defines us is that we are all one in Christ Jesus. And when it comes to matters of salvation and union with Christ, there is no division theologically. And therefore, Paul is saying there should be no division relationally. And so Paul is going to use three categories to get this point across. He's going to use ethnicity, class, and gender. It was an explosive statement 2,000 years ago. And those categorical distinctions of ethnicity or what we might call race today, class and gender, you know full well. They remain not just distinctions, but hugely divisive, not only in our culture, but in our churches. And if we allow those to be divisive in the church, the message from Paul to us in the church today is the same. No, no, no. What are you doing? That's not what the gospel does. And if your practices and attitudes do not align with our understanding of what it means to be in Christ as a community, then back to Augustine, maybe we're exposing that we never really understood what it meant in the first place. Each of these categories, ethnicity, class, and gender, they have entire sections in the bookstore, okay? And for good reason, because there's a lot to unpack there. But let me just address each one briefly to kind of help us just get a grasp on what this can mean for us today, starting with ethnicity or race. Um, I'm not going to get into the difference of those definition of those words of which are socially constructed, but, but let's just kind of talk about, you know, think about the Jew and Gentile divide, uh, those from different backgrounds. Although interestingly, Jews and Gentiles in the first century were likely the same quote-unquote race as we often def- define it today, and they probably looked a lot alike but they were different backgrounds uh, related to religious roots. It was the biggest divide throughout the New Testament. Jews and Gentiles, which just means non-Jews. And there was a hostility between these two groups in the first century, which is why the Judaizers were causing trouble in the church of Galatians that caused Paul to write this letter, saying that these Gentiles who come to faith in Christ, they cannot be included in the promise and in the church until they become converts to Jewish law and culture. They could not fathom non-Jews being in equal fellowship if they remained as Gentiles. They, They couldn't even get their minds there. And Gentiles were coming from a background that could not stand the Jews. That the Jews failed to honor the traditions of the Roman Empire. The Jews were just out doing their own thing meaning that this wall was double-sided, right? Like they both wanted a wall up. We don't like them. They don't like us. 
you could say, um, even if you kind of believed and came to the conviction that, okay, Gentiles can be Christians, and they can be, you know, one in, in Christ, and okay, I can affirm that, but wouldn't it just be easier, wouldn't it just be more practical just to keep the f- fellowship separate? Let's just have our Jewish churches, let's have our Gentile churches, we'll worship the same God, but we can avoid some tension, can we just keep it separate? I think we can get an idea for what that would be like today, because that is often the way the churches are treated today broken along ethnic lines. And Paul is saying to that, no way. What kind of witness is that? That that since they are one in Christ before God, they have the opportunity now to be one in Christ in fellowship for the world to see. The faith rooted in Christ does not build walls or keep walls. It tears them down. It's like Paul wrote in Ephesians 2, verse 14, For he, meaning Christ, he himself is our peace, who has made us both one and has broken down the dividing wall of hostility that he might create in himself one new man in the place of two, so making peace. Paul is saying that when you become a Christian, you do not lose your distinction as a Jew or a Gentile, but those titles are subordinate to your distinction as a Christian as being in Christ. That that God's promise to Abraham to be a blessing to all nations of the earth has been fulfilled by Christ. And so to the Jews, when you look at a Gentile, you see them first as a brother and sister in Christ, then as a Gentile. To the Gentile, when you see a Jew, you see them first as a brother or sister in Christ, and then as a Jew. You don't erase their ethnicity, but you don't let it be a division. It doesn't mean the distinctions don't exist, but it does mean that when you're in Christ, they don't matter in the way that you see and view them at their core. And man, how terribly this has been practiced by the church. And we should lament how ethnic divisions have remained divisions in the culture and in the church. That even in our own country, there's a long history of people not being treated as one simply because their ethnicity or race is different. Not treated as family, but as enemies. As lesser than because of just something as simple as the color of their skin. Those are terrible scars that remain today because of our history. And so we ought to lament because that is true and then understand where can we work against that today. We'll come back to that in a minute, but let's go to number two, the second division, no less explosive in the first century, one of class. Paul says there is neither slave nor free, acknowledging the socioeconomic class within the church. And so I don't have time to dig into this fully here as I have in the past, uh, but slavery in the Roman Empire is not correlated directly with the slavery we first think of that has happened in our country's own history. Uh, in short, that the kind of slavery system in the uh, first century was more of what we might describe or have learned as indentured servitude, and very loosely connected to what you might even think of as the employer-employee relationship that we exist and operate within today. But the point is for this text, is, and where it's relevant to every church in our day, is that economic differences and socioeconomic distinctions will always remain in the church. 
The Bible does not teach that the church owns everybody's personal property and the church decides who gets what. It does say that we ought to be marked by generosity towards one another, but but those class distinctions will always exist in every church and every culture. And Paul is saying, rather than organize your churches according to your class distinction, we should pursue unity in the midst of that diversity, and once again, treat one another first as brothers and sisters in Christ, despite the worldly distinctions of how valuable you are. He says, now in Christ, you are all on equal footing before God, regardless of what kind of assets are attached to your name. It's not that those assets are erased, and much is expected from those who have a higher distinction of economic class, but it's that that they, once again, no longer matter in how you see one another. And how you see one another will ultimately shape how you treat one another. That's the second one. Now and third, the distinction of gender. And while Paul writes extensively about the Jew-Gentile divide in the New Testament and in Galatians, I think him writing here, there is no male and female, might have actually been the most explosive phrase of this whole sentence to everyone reading in the first century. And the reason is because while the Jews and the Gentiles were very divided and divisive with one another in a lot of ways, they were actually, unfortunately, united in their terrible treatment in view of women. There was a popular prayer written by a rabbi named Eliezer who lived at the turn of the first and second centuries. And the popular prayer that he started but then got um, mimicked or repeated throughout the Jewish culture was this, quote, Praise be God that he has not created me a Gentile. Praise be God that he has not created me a woman. Praise be God that he has not created me an ignorant man. It was a creed. And then in Roman culture, amongst the Gentiles, women had no voice in public life. They could not attend, speak, or vote at any political assemblies. Completely devalued in a very hierarchical, patriarchal system. They were unified in their terrible treatment of women. And that's the context that Paul writes in the church. Paul says being in Christ means that men and women are one in Christ. One level footing, on level footing before the Lord. And therefore, should see and value each other as brothers and sisters in Christ before they see each other different or distinct from one another. So once again, distinctions amongst men and women are not erased by the gospel, but those distinctions are not elevated above our oneness in Christ. And here we are, man, 2,000 years later. This is a fascinating cross-section with our culture's view on gender right now. There is an increasing push to eliminate gender distinctions or to make those distinctions purely in the mind of the individual where you can choose your gender. And it's being increasingly casted that you only love someone if you recognize their chosen gender. But erasing the distinctions 
have not only made it difficult to define what a man and woman is, it is erasing their personhood and erasing God's creative design when, when, the, when he created the world. He says he created them male and female. So we're not erasing distinctions. They've been instated by God. But those distinctions were put in place by God not to elevate one over the other, but to display their absolute unity in the midst of those distinctions and not let them become divisions. Now, across these three categories, again, I I think on some level it's simple to understand. One in Christ. Distinctions, not divisions. But we also need to understand that that truth should shape our practices today. And again, here's what I mean. Across history, different societies and cultures, including the church, have allowed these distinctions to shape how they discriminate against whole groups of people, where the desire for power and control surpassed the, the desire for unity and service. And today, where do we stand today as the church? How can I say this in three minutes? I don't know. But the church has the opportunity to not only affirm the same truth that Paul is affirming, affirm our equality and oneness before the Lord, but then I think the church has the responsibility to advocate for those who are marginalized by the sinful desire for power and control. Now, we, we should recognize in our society where ha- is this kind of off kilter and what can the church do to help to rectify I don't think it's enough to just affirm theological equality, but because we have theological equality, we work towards the gap of those life's inequalities as we see it today. So in the realm of ethnicity and race, the church should advocate for races that are, uh, who are not treated equally or given equal opportunity. And where in the United States... That has historically and therefore currently means people of color that have, have less access to health care, are disproportionately imprisoned, are restricted from access to building equity in homes. To see that truth and understand that is not aligned with how God and Paul wrote in Galatians. And what can we do to advocate for those who have been sinned against in that way? In the realm of socioeconomic class, the church should advocate for classes that suffer from lower education opportunities and see how kind of the modern-day caste system often impacts one's outcomes in life based solely upon what kind of family and what town they were born in. In the realm of gender, where women's voices are muted, their giftings often not pursued, seen more as a threat to men as opposed to vital partners for men, even in the church, that in the life of a church and the desire to make disciples, which we talk about all the time, and to see the flourishing of others, the church should advocate for and raise up women as indispensable in the ministry of the local church. These are simple truths with massive implications in how we view ourselves and how we see and view others. Every person belongs to a certain ethnicity. Every person is developed within a certain culture. Every person is a certain gender. And those distinctions will always be there. But in Christ, they are no longer a wall or a barrier to fellowship. And so as we close, maybe a question to ask ourselves today and moving on from here is this. 
which communal identity do you feel the most solidarity with? Which communal identity are you most allegiant to? Is it possible that the one you're most allegiant to is a citizenship of a certain country or a location in a certain city or a certain state of a people with a certain skin color of, of maybe even fans of a certain sports team or a certain gender or a community that has formed around a favorite hobby of yours. Which communal identity do you find the most solidarity with? And having and enjoying those communal identities is not wrong. It can be wrong. It's not necessarily wrong in itself to enjoy a communal identity. As long as Christians, we know that any and all communal identities get demoted below our new identity of being in Christ. And by knowing that, launching there, having the foundation there, our attitudes and our practices are shaped by our communal identity in the church, and nothing's going to overtake that. What is the most decisive thing about us can never be taken then from us. It's why you can relate deeply and connect deeply with a fellow believer you might have just met in ways that you can never go deep in ways with a non-believer you've known your entire life. It's why we can have a prayer service this past Thursday downstairs in Fellowship Hall with about 60 people from Grace Church, many of which had never met each other walking into that room because a lot of them have been new to Grace and yet they can pray with passion and conviction for our church, for our community, for our country, and for our world. Why? Because we are in Christ Jesus. And so let's see this truth. Let's hover over it, hear it, believe it, and let us live it all out in all of its implications. And the church that does that, and we will do it imperfectly for sure, but the church that does that Watch what God will do through that church to shine a bright light in this dark world. Let's pray. Father, we are always thankful for your word. It is increasingly stunning to me how the same word that can convict us, even wound us, is also the same word that can heal us. And Father, I pray that your spirit, like a master surgeon, would wound us in order to heal for your glory. I pray, Lord, for everybody watching, everybody here this morning, Lord, that we would just think deeply of what it is, of, of how we see ourselves, Lord. I pray for the courage and the faith to see ourselves as in you. Father, for anyone who has not yet believed in you, Lord, have not trusted their life to you, Lord, I pray your spirit would even just come upon them now, Lord. Give them the conviction to say, I'm done trying to define myself in other ways, Lord. I surrender to you, for there is freedom. Give us the courage to take that step, Lord. And I pray, Lord, that the way we see us at Grace Church would be glorifying to you, would be a witness in this world, and that it would be for our joy and your glory that we pursue these things. It's in your name that we pray. Amen. Amen. Let's go ahead and stand and respond in song as we prepare to take the Lord's Supper.